Colossians is an interesting letter. And interestingly enough, it is a letter that is fairly neglected when it comes to, um, you don't hear it taught that much. When you look for resources to study it, there's not as much available as there would be for, say, uh, something like Ephesians or Romans or uh, maybe Hebrews or you know some of the other uh, letters are there, there's much more availability when it comes to resources for them. Colossians is almost like this this little book that's just to some degree been ignored. I think one of the reasons for that is because in certain places it is so similar to Ephesians. I think some people just think, well, I'm going to just read Ephesians because it says the same things Colossians says. And, and there's a few places in Colossians where it's literally word for word uh, the same as passages in Ephesians. But what people fail to remember is that there's a unique aspect to Colossians as well that really um, isn't found in any other epistle of the New Testament to this degree, and it's addressing the, the subject of philosophy. Now, 1 Corinthians addresses philosophy a little bit, uh, but Colossians really addresses the subject of philosophy. And what I mean by philosophy, it addresses uh, human ideas and theories and teachings that are contrary to the Word of God and shows us how we are not to try to blend those things together because apparently in Colossae, that's what was happening. The, the Colossian Christians were, were buying into some of these other ideas that were incorrect and contrary to the gospel of Jesus, and they were thinking that you could blend these things together. Now, that's called syncretism. Syncretism is the... It's the idea that you would take different religions or different views, and then you would sort of make one uh, new view out of many. And so the Colossians were engaged in that to some degree. So Paul spends a lot of the second chapter addressing uh, bad philosophy. So that's one of the things that we'll look at as we go through this letter. We'll look at the subject of philosophy. There's good philosophy, and uh, C.S. Lewis, as a matter of fact, he said that there needs to be good philosophy if for no other reason than to uh, combat bad philosophy. And so when we talk about philosophy, we just want to understand that uh, what Paul's talking about are those ideas that originate with men that contradict the Word of God, but that are sometimes blend, sought uh, people seek to blend them together. So that's one of the unique features of Colossians. Now, um, it dawned on me today that the last time I taught through Colossians was in 1996. So some of you maybe were not even born in 1996. So that was a long time ago. And uh, although I think I've taught it in like, you know, kind of just a quick survey of the Bible since then, I have never since then taught it in an in-depth fashion. It was the last book I taught to my church that I used to pastor down in Vista, California before I, uh, my family and I moved to England. 
And so I have fond memories of going through Colossians back then, but I'm excited about us going through it now. So we're gonna be taking a journey through Colossians, and I don't know exactly what the pace is going to be, but I hope that you are blessed and encouraged as we go through it. Now, what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna focus specifically on the, the prayer that the apostle pens for us here. In, in Paul's prison epistles, and, and this is also a prison epistle. So a prison epistle is a letter that Paul wrote from prison. We saw as we studied Philippians that uh, Paul was clearly in prison when he wrote it. He made several references to the fact that that was his state. That was the case when he wrote Ephesians as well. And uh, he also wrote Philemon from prison. He wrote Second Timothy from prison. But Colossians is one of those prison epistles. And so this, uh, in the prison epistles, Paul, he prays for those that he's writing the letters to. So in Ephesians, you have uh, two really beautiful prayers that Paul prays. In Philippians, you have one. And now here in Colossians, you have one. And the thing about these prayers that we always need to keep in mind is that these are spirit-inspired prayers. Just like everything else that's written in the pages of Scripture are, are the inspired words of God, so these words are the inspired words of God. And these prayers, these prayers are, we, we can understand them as these are the things that God would have us pray for. He's, he's basically telling us, pray for this, and, and then pray for this, and pray for this. So when the Lord's telling us how to pray, that's something we want to pay real close attention to. So this particular prayer that we're going to look at in a moment is my favorite of all the prayers in um, these prison epistles. And as a matter of fact, there's been occasions where people have asked me, well, you know, Pastor Brian, how can we pray for you? And often I will say, take uh, Colossians chapter one and look at that prayer in verses nine through 12 and just pray that for me. If you do that, I'll love you forever. That, that'll be totally sufficient. And so we're gonna dig down and look at that in a moment. But I wanna give us just a little bit of background here. Now, Colossians or Colossae is the city. The Colossians are the people of the city. Uh, this is a place where Paul has never been. He's not been there, but his ministry has impacted the place. In, um, in Acts chapter 19, we read about Paul being in the city of Ephesus, and he was there for three years, and for two years, he taught regularly in um, what was called the school of Tyrannus. We don't really know exactly who Tyrannus was or what this was, but it was a, a facility that was an educational facility that somehow Paul got the opportunity to use as his base to proclaim the gospel. And so for two straight years, Paul taught regularly in the school of Tyrannus, sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, spreading the word of God. And it tells us in Acts chapter 19 that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus through the ministry of Paul there in Ephesus. All that, that dwelt in Asia. Now that's, a, that's hyperbole. It wasn't like literally every single person, 
But the point is, multitudes of people throughout the province of Asia. Now, Ephesus was the chief city of the province of Asia. So this is the place where uh, everybody in that province would, would come to at, at some point in time. This was the, you know, the great center of everything you could want in the province. So Paul sets up there, he ministers there, he preaches there, and people would come from all around Asia and they would hear Paul preach the gospel. You know, maybe they would come into Ephesus and they would just hear about this, this interesting person. They would hear about this man named Paul who was a preacher of the gospel, talking about a Messiah. And these Gentiles would come and somehow they would hear about that and they would end up over listening to Paul share the gospel and some would get converted. And when they got saved, they would take their newfound salvation back to their uh, own cities and they would begin to spread the gospel. So that's what happened here. And this man who's mentioned right here in the first chapter, this man named Epaphras, he's the one who had been converted more than likely by Paul. He's the one who went back to Colossae where he was from. He preached the gospel and the Lord used him to start a church there in that city. So although Paul had not gone there, his, um, his ministry had reached there through the people that he touched in, um, there in Ephesus. Now, um, Asia was a Roman province in what we know today as Turkey. And if you look in the book of Revelation, you have the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. You have Laodicea, you have Thyatira, you have um, Philadelphia, you have Smyrna, you have Sardis, you have all these different places. Well, Colossae, although it's not listed in the seven, it was also a city that had a church in this province of Asia. Now, the city of Colossae, just for a quick little uh, background on that, at, at this time in the history of the city, it was um, really an insignificant location. There, earlier on in the history of the city, it had prominence uh, back during the Phrygian Empire, the Lydian Empire. It was a significant city at the time. But, but by the time uh, Paul is preaching, Colossae is, is no longer a place of any real significance. And therefore, you know, the city's not of any real significance, nor then would the people be considered of any real significance. It's not like a place where people would be dying to go. Oh man, we want to we want to take a trip to Colossae. Nobody really wanted to do that. It was just a, a place that un, unless you had come from there, you probably wouldn't even know that it existed. And it is certainly a place that unless it had been immortalized in the pages of the New Testament, we today wouldn't even know it ever existed in history. There would be no other reason. But what we see in that is God takes what people think uh, to be insignificant and God brings significance to it. And he does that with places and he does that with people. He takes people's lives who others might look on and just think, well, you know, 
Who are they? They're, they're nobody. They're nothing. I mean, a person might even feel that about themselves. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. But God can take that life and make something beautiful out of it. He can take an unknown city and give it worldwide fame because of what he does. And you know, in a funny sort of a way, there's a parallel between Colossae and Costa Mesa, believe it or not. And here's the parallel. Costa Mesa is known around the world. Now, it's not known because of um, anything you know, within the city, like a, a special park, or uh, it's not known because uh, its civic center is this amazing place. Uh, it's not even known around the world because of South Coast Plaza. But Costa Mesa is known around the world because of this church. I have been to many places around the world, and people know Costa Mesa. That Costa Mesa, that's Calvary Chapel, right? That's Pastor Chuck Smith, right? So God took this place that is otherwise totally insignificant. You know, sometimes when we're traveling, somebody will ask you where you're from. Now, Unless, you know, I know there's a Christian connection. I rarely say Costa Mesa. Sometimes I do. But, you know, you might say, oh, we're from Los Angeles. Now, that makes it easy. Everybody kind of has, okay, yeah, Los Angeles. We know that's on the west coast of the United States. Uh, sometimes, you know, if Cheryl's with me and we're talking to people that have children and they ask where we're from, Cheryl always says, have you ever heard of Disneyland? People are like, yeah. She goes, we live 20 miles from Disneyland. We live on the same street that Disneyland is on. And so that's you know, the point of reference. If we were to just say to some random person, and I have said this, so, well, we live in Costa Mesa. Where's that? And they usually call it Costa Mesa. <laughs> Where's that? But wherever I have met Christians around the world, they have heard of Costa Mesa. Because God took an insignificant place and he touched people's lives through the gospel. He established a church. And from this church, the, the message has gone out around the world. So a couple of introductory things there. Now, let's just jump in. I want to read from verse 3. And so there Paul says, we give thanks to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul says about these uh, saints in Colossae, he says three things. He says, um, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So, so this little church has had an impact. And word is spreading, not just throughout the city of Colossae, but it's spreading beyond that. They've heard of their faith. And secondly, Paul says, and we've also... Uh, heard about the love that you have for all the saints. And then thirdly, we've heard about uh, your hope uh, that is set in heaven. And boy, these are the things that we would 
long for people to hear about us, that they would hear about our faith, they would hear about our love, and they would hear about the hope that we have in heaven, that we have a hope that is not rooted in this world, it's not rooted in a political system, it's not rooted in what man is ultimately gonna be able to do, but we have a certain hope that is rooted in Christ who is going to come and establish God's kingdom. So that was the, the testimony that had gone out about the Colossians. Now Paul, as I said, he now prays for them. And so verse nine, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. So as we look at this prayer, what I want us to think about is I want us to think about this prayer uh, as a prayer for the church. Now, when we, quite a few years ago now, we, we studied Ephesians. Some of you might have been around back then. I think it was six years ago or so. We studied Ephesians. We looked at those two great prayers in chapter one and chapter three. And when we studied them, we, we made very personal application of them. And when we were studying Philippians a while back, as we looked at that great prayer in Philippians chapter one, we looked at it and we applied it very personally. And although we could do the same thing with this prayer here, we have to remember that these prayers were also, uh, I mean, really, in this case, Paul is praying for the church collectively. And the church collectively is made up of individuals. We know that. But we need to think sometimes in terms of the church collectively. And as we look at this prayer, I think it's a beautiful reminder of what God intends the church to be in the world. And listen, we're living in a time when the church really does need to be what God intends it to be. Because we're living in a time of desperation. We're living in a time of confusion. We're living in a time where people are wondering about things, where people are, are looking for answers. You know, um, with the, you know, I mean, we were navigating the coronavirus. We were trying to make our way through that. We were challenged and going through all the difficulties of it. And, and just when it looked like things were maybe starting to turn with the coronavirus, all of a sudden we had this, this thing that happened in the country where this, uh, this man was murdered and the, you know, the riots began and, and all of everything just went crazy. And we have seen uh, how the, the world between the pandemic and between the rioting and the looting and the protesting and all that, it, it's like pe people are frightened. People are wondering what, what's going on. What is the answer? What is the solution? How do we solve these kinds of problems? How do we, uh, how do we deal with the fear of these things? you know that there's a lot of people still, even right here in Orange County, apparently not in Huntington Beach, but, or Newport Beach, but in other places in Orange County, there are people that are, are still afraid to go out and engage in normal life. They're, they're living in fear of the, the coronavirus. I have a friend who pastors a church on the East Coast. His church is about 1,800 people. He's been open for five weeks, and he has just over 100 people that have come back to church. 
they can all come. You know, they, they don't even have the kinds of restrictions that we have here. So they don't have a, a, a number limit. Everybody could come back to church if they want. But the majority of the church chooses to stay home. They're frightened. So my point is, this is a time where people in their desperation are looking for answers. And we know that the church has the answer. We know that the answer is in the gospel. We know that the answer for the fear of death is in the gospel. We know the answer for uh, racism is in the gospel. We know the answer for uh, anarchy and confusion. We know that that is in the gospel. And so how do we as the church um, really shine brightly at this time and be all that God intends us to be? Well, if the things that, that the apostle prays for here, if these things become a reality in our midst, then we will be what we need to be at this time. So let's look at the things that Paul mentions. I'm going to just read through the prayer and then we'll come back. So he says, um, he's asking uh, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father. We'll stop right there. Giving thanks to the Father. So what's the first thing that the apostle prays for? He prays that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, there's many facets to God's will. Now, a church that exists is in the will of God in one sense because the will of God is that we believe in Christ. So we put our faith in Christ and now we've become the people of God. We are the church of God. So we're in the will of God in one sense, but I believe that God has a will for each congregation, a will in the sense that there's something that God wants to do with that congregation in a community and maybe at specific points in time. And we need to be praying that we would know what that is. And so right now, at this time in history, we are praying, Lord, give us the knowledge of your will. What do you want Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa to be like at this time and uh, at, the, at this moment in history? And, you know, honestly, this is something we are praying for as uh, a staff. We're praying for this as a pastoral team. We're asking as we come out of this unprecedented season of uh, the pandemic, we're saying, okay, Lord, we're kind of like coming out, so sort of like Noah coming out of the ark to a whole new situation. Lord, what do you want to do at this time with your church? And so as we think about praying for the church, we want to pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Boy, we need wisdom today. The people of God need wisdom. These are really treacherous waters. This is, this is really difficult navigation these days. And, and we need wisdom from God. 
Wisdom, somebody has said, is the, it's the proper application of knowledge. So, you know, you can have knowledge. You can be a person whose brain is full of all kinds of information. You can actually be on paper. You can be a really smart person. But if you don't have wisdom, you don't know how to apply that knowledge. And so even though you're really smart, it doesn't look like you're smart because you make bad decisions and you draw wrong conclusions and you, uh, you, know, you, you add to the problem rather than bring about a solution. Wisdom is the principal thing. We need wisdom. And as the church today, boy, we need wisdom. Here we are in these crazy times. We need to know, uh, Lord, how do we navigate this? What do you want us to see here? How do you want us to, to respond to this? And boy, I'll tell you for myself, as we've been going through this, I've just been seeking, Lord, give me wisdom. I don't want to make the wrong decisions. I don't want to go in the wrong direction. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I want to be in tune with you. So praying for wisdom and then for spiritual understanding. We as a church, we need to see the world around us. We need to see it through the lens of God's will. We need to see it through the lens of God's word. So spiritual understanding means that we're going to look at things not for what they appear, we're going to look beyond what we can see with the naked eye, and we're going to seek to see, Lord, what do you have in this situation? Lord, show us what you see here. Because, you know, it might look one way to us. We might think that, well, here's the issue, and I can see it, and here's the solution. But that's, that, that's really worldly understanding a lot of times. We need spiritual understanding. I need to see it through God's eyes. And I need to be able to act based upon what God sees in these circumstances and how he would have me to act. And so Paul prays that. But then he says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So again, think of the church collectively. The church walking worthy of the Lord, or just to put it simply, Christians behaving like God says we should behave, living like we should behave, living like we really are lovers of Jesus, we're really followers of Jesus. You know, one of the biggest problems in the world is that Christians don't live like Christians. We don't live up to uh, our, our name. We're the children of God. And this has happened over and over again in history, right? It's happened, it happened throughout the history of the children of Israel. And the prophets would lament over and over again how God saved this people Israel so they could be a bright and a shining light to the nations around them. And the prophets would lament and say, you know, you guys have become worse than the nations around you. you they, those nations are, are not even as bad as you are. And sometimes that's the case with the church. A lot of people have a very negative attitude toward the church. And one of the reasons is, is because they see Christian people and they think, well, you know, if that's a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So we are called 
And Paul is praying for us that we would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. That our ambition would be to fully please God. Because if, if I'm just trying to get by, if I'm just content to try to straddle the fence, you know, I've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, if I'm doing that, I, I'm, I'm not going to walk worthy and I'm going to be a bad witness rather than a good witness. And so Paul is praying for them that they would uh, walk worthy and that they would seek to fully please him. And that's really the, the simplest way to, to walk worthy of the Lord is just have it as your objective. I, I want to please the Lord. I want to please the Lord. You know, sometimes people uh, want to know, what can I do by way of kind of giving in to you know, sort of sinful tendencies and things like that. You know, how much of that can I still do as a Christian and, and still be okay? You know, some, I mean, for some people, it's like, well, how much can I still sin and, and then get to heaven? Some people think like that, seriously. That is, that is the complete opposite of how we should be thinking. What we should be thinking is, man, how can I please the Lord more? Lord, how, how can my life just be more devoted to you? That's what Paul is praying for. And then he says, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Sometimes we forget this, but the church is called to live out our faith through good works. It seems like there's always this, this uh, confusion in people's minds about uh, faith and works. Some people... Uh, are, are so concerned that they're living by faith, they just say, you know, I just believe God, that's all there is to it. I, I don't give me any legalism, no, don't lay any works on me because then that would take away from faith. And then on the other side of it, there are people who are, well, you know, I don't know about your faith, but man, I'm gonna do these things and, and I'm gonna try harder and you know, hopefully I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be okay with God. But the Bible says that both of these things go together. That faith, which is the root, it shows itself in good works, which are the fruit. So the fruit doesn't produce the root. The root produces the fruit. So it's faith that shows itself in good deeds. And that's what Paul, again, is praying for the church, that the church will be fruitful in every good work. And you know, when a, when a church uh, has a vision and a mission to impact the community that they're in, you know, the good works, they, they're noticed by people. People notice what, what, what's going on with that. And, you know, I know of some ministries around the area where some uh, the church is out and they're engaged in doing things in the community. And, and oftentimes the onlookers will come and say, well, you know, who are you guys? And why are you doing this? This is a good thing. What's going on here? Oh, well, you know, we're doing this and we're from this church. Really? You're from a church. And well, why are you doing this? Well, we just put, you know, there's a need here and we just felt like God wanted us to step out. And people are like, wow, that's, that's really good. They might not at the, on the spot say, well, I want to become a Christian too. But you know they're going to walk away and they're going to say, you know, I, I don't really like Christians, but man, those Christians are doing some good stuff. That happens over and over again. 
And that's what we want to uh, you know, set up for. We want to be fruitful in every good work. And as we do, that will be a way to uh, impact not only impact people's lives that we're doing the good works toward, but it'll, it'll serve to take the gospel further. And then he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, our knowledge of God can continue to increase throughout our whole lives. There will never come a time in your life where you you attain to the ultimate and the, or the maximum amount of knowledge of God. There's never going to come a time where you say, man, I just know God. I know God so well. I, I, I couldn't know God any better. We could always know God better. There's always more. He, the, the riches of Christ are unsearchable. They're beyond our ability to finally comprehend. So our, our whole lives as Christians in our whole life as a church, we can keep going through the word of God over and over and over again, and we're never going to exhaust it. What we're going to do is actually, we're going to uh, increase in the knowledge of God through that. And then he says, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. So he's praying for the church, that the church would be strengthened. Now, remember the churches in the New Testament time, these churches were, uh, they were persecuted. They, the, the people that, that came to faith in Jesus in those days, they came out of uh, paganism and they sometimes came out of Judaism, but they were not at all uh, appreciated for what they had done. And they would oftentimes experience uh, persecution and sometimes very intensely. In the first few centuries of Christian history, we know that there were, there were these uh, periods of great persecution where many Christians were, were killed. And so it was that sort of an, an environment and the apostle, knowing that, he says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering. The Christians needed to be strengthened so they could be patient and so they could suffer long. What's the difference between patience and long suffering? Well, patience has to do with just, um, you know, maybe things are delayed and you're, you're waiting for them. Maybe you're getting restless. Maybe you're getting agitated because you know things aren't happening. Oh Lord, I need patience. Maybe you're impatient with a person. Long suffering means you're actually going through something that's causing suffering, and the prayer is is to be strengthened to be able to endure through that suffering. But then he adds this word with joy. And you see, these are the things. These are seemingly small things. Joy, it seems like a small thing, but it's really not. It's a huge thing. Because when you are in a difficult situation, when you're in an unpleasant situation, when you're in a trying situation, when you're in a testing situation, when you're in a place where you're actually you know, suffering, and you endure that joyfully, man, that speaks volumes to people. That is huge. 
because that's not what we normally see. These kinds of things can be such a powerful witness to others about the reality of who Jesus is. Now, as we know, we've been going through this time, three months. Uh, you know, today's three months to the day since we met in the church building. And, and for some people, this has been a really trying time. It has been very, very difficult. And some people have navigated it with patience and with um, long-suffering and joy, and some people have not. Some people have been super irritated. People have been really angry. People have said, well, this isn't fair. I don't want to do this. I'm going to revolt against this. Uh, we got a question on the radio this past week. A lady was asking. She said, you know, I'm, I'm hearing some pastors invite people to church, and they're inviting them to come to, their, to, come to the, um, what, did, what did she call it? Come out to the protest. Come on Sunday out to the protest. And she said, I don't know, that just doesn't seem like the, the best way to look at gathering for church, like we're, we're in a big protest. But some people grew impatient said, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, this is over. I'm, I'm going back. But you know, again, that's where your witness starts to break down. Because people are looking on going, wait, aren't the Christians supposed to be the patient people? Aren't the Christians supposed to be the long-suffering people? Aren't the Christians supposed to be the joyful people? The Christians are all in an uproar. See, that's not the right message we want to send. And so Paul knows how important for us personally it is to maintain our joy and to be patient through these things, but he also knows that this is part of the church's uh, powerful witness to the world. And then finally, he just says, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. And Paul, as he follows his own uh, teaching here, because remember in Philippians, he says, uh, don't worry about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so here Paul is doing that very thing. He's, he's requesting these things. He's petitioning the Lord. And then he says, and giving thanks to the Father. Now, as we come to our conclusion tonight, um, I want to remind us of this. So again, although this prayer can be taken and prayed personally for uh, yourself or for others, or like I said, I ask people to pray this prayer for me, we're, we're looking at it as a prayer for the church collectively. And we have to remember this, that the church is Christ's visible presence on the earth. See, that's what the church is. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit and he drew together his body. And since that time, the, the presence of the Lord has been in the church and it's through the church that God wants to reveal Christ to the world. And so we have got to understand that. Now, um, this has been said, and I think that it is true. As the church goes, so goes the culture. As the church goes, so goes the culture. You see, if a church is being what God intended it to be, it will have an impact on the society that it's in. Jesus said, 
regarding the church, he said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Salt preserves, it keeps things from corrupting, and light, of course, drives out darkness. Jesus says to the church, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. But he says, if the salt loses its flavor, it is then good for nothing, and it is cast out and it is trampled under the foot of men. And this is what happens when the church loses its witness it kind of, the whole world then just uh, goes down with the church. And then there are places all over the world where you could look and you could see that there was at one time a strong Christian witness in this place. You know, in New Zealand, there's a, a city called Christchurch. A city. Why is it called Christchurch? Well, the people who founded it believed in Christ and they founded a city and they called it Christchurch. If you go into England or Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland or places like that, you know, or Italy for that matter, or different places in Europe, you can find all of these uh, references to Christ and to the, the Word of God and, uh, you know, go to these universities and you've got Jesus College and you've got, you know, all of these things. And you think, wow, this is amazing. Drive down streets in... Uh, you know, these different cities or towns and their streets that have biblical names to them and so forth. You think, wow, what, what was going on here? Well, the Christians were having an influence in the community. But as time went on, and as the church moved away from confidence in the Bible and proclaiming the word of God, the church began to decline. And slowly but surely, the, the culture around began to decline as well. And so as the church goes, so goes the culture. Where the church is compromised, the witness of the church will be lost. So let me just mention compromise for a moment. A church that compromises is a church that seeks to accommodate the sinful culture. That's one way the church can compromise. The church seeks to accommodate the sinful culture. The church, uh, the causes of the church, the church just takes on the causes of the world. Boy, we are living in that time right now. It's really interesting. If you look at so many of the causes among people in certain aspects of the church, they're identical. The world is like setting the, the pace for what people are going to be passionate about. And so... That's an indication of a compromised church or a church that is self-righteous, a church that's forgotten that we too are sinners saved by grace. That is a compromised church because we've lost sight of um, the fact that we are saved because of God's love, not because of our own goodness. Another manifestation of a compromised church would be a church that aligns itself to the worldly powers so that the distinction between the gospel and the party platform is hardly distinguishable. And this has happened over and over, and it still happens today. That um, you, you, you find that there's a, a mixture between uh, political ideas and biblical ideas. It's like I was talking earlier about that syncretism. And so for some people... Uh, being just a moral person is equivalent to being a Christian. 
If you are for a certain party and you're against these certain vices and things, then you're a Christian. Well, not necessarily. You might just be a conservative moral person, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. But all of these things are ways the church can compromise. But when the church is strong, the witness and the impact of the church is going to be powerful in a community. So a church is strong that holds fast to God's word regardless of the cultural pressure that comes upon it. You know, there's huge pressure in the culture today upon the church to get with the program, you know, get with the times. And the favorite saying is, get on the right side of history. You know, so many people talk about Christians as, you know, you've, you guys are on the wrong side of history. Well, actually, we want to be on the side that God is on. His, we want to be on his side. And so we can't be pressured into uh, compromising God's word because of the culture. But, but the faithful church uh, proclaims the gospel in word and deed, not just not just speaking, but, but living out the faith and putting uh, feet to our belief and action. And that, that strong church is a church that walks in grace and humility. And it's a church that, that does justly and loves mercy. And you see, when a church is like that, that church is going to have an impact. And the world that we are presently living in, more than any time that I can remember, more than any time that I can remember, needs to see the church as Jesus intended it to be. And the church that Jesus intended to be is found in the pages of Scripture. So how can we, how can we contribute to that? Well, we can contribute to making the church what the Lord intends it to be and what the world needs it to be by doing the very things that are mentioned here in the prayers, by praying them uh, for ourselves and for one another. But for the church collectively, how can we see this happen? Well, we can do what Paul did. Paul prayed for the church. Remember, this is his prayer for the Colossian church, for that church in that city, for those local congregations spread throughout that city. This is what Paul's praying for them so that they then would be that bright and shining light that they could lead people out of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And so we, as God's people, we need to pray for the church. We need to pray for our church. Lord, give us wisdom. Show us your will. What do you want to do with us right now at this time and in this place? Work in our midst. And, and Lord, we want to pray for the church in our, in our region, in our county. You know, sometimes what happens, this is, you know, the, the enemy is so... Well, he's smart. He knows how to, he knows how to, to break down um, a, a good witness. And what he does so often is he comes in and he gets churches all divided against each other. 
You know, and in a community where the church is to be working together for the, for the cause of the gospel, he comes in, he tries to sow division, jealousy, things like that. Tries to put it in the hearts of leaders to say, hey, don't listen to that guy or don't ever go to that church or, oh, that's bad over there. They're not as good as us. Man, we got to just forget all of that stuff. Just like, Lord, we need your whole body. And so we, we want to pray for the church in our community. Last Saturday, we went out uh, through uh, the vision that Pastor Tommy Cota had from Hope Alive Church in Santa Ana to go and do a prayer walk on the streets of Santa Ana. Uh, Tommy said God just put it on his heart to do it. He posted a thing on his Instagram, said he was going to do it. I saw it. I said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to go do this. You want to go? I said, yeah, let's go. So we just, you know, invited some people, came out, a couple hundred people joined us from different churches, probably 15 different churches. And we were able to just walk through the, the heart of the city and then the civic center there. We were just stopping and praying and man, it was fantastic. But that's what, that's what we need to do. Praying for the church in our community, praying for the church in our state, our nation, around the world. And what do we pray? Well, we can pray this prayer right here. Perfect. Perfect prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. And man, this is, the, this is the prayer that the church needs at this hour. And like I said, this is the prayer that I need. If you want to pray for me, this is the prayer. And I'm going to pray this for you too. So Father, we thank you that you have given us instruction. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful prayer that we can pray uh, over one another, that we can pray for your church. And Lord, we do pray right now. We pray that we, your church, your people, Lord, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing you. And Lord, may we be fruitful in every good work, and may we continue to grow in the knowledge of God. Lord, strengthen us with your glorious power so that we can be patient and long-suffering and that we can be joyful witnesses of your goodness. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, work these wonderful things that you spelled out in, in this prayer Work these into us as a, as a congregation. Work these things into your church in these days, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.